I want to thank uh, Sheer Platnik and family for hosting, uh, especially uh, generous of her since at the moment she couldn't even be here. So she's not here, but nevertheless, she still left her house open to us, and we very, very much appreciate it. As I was mentioning uh, a few minutes ago while we were waiting for my laptop, uh, just it's, everything is so hectic and crazy with the, between people moving and uh, various schools and children and kids being in Bidud and all sorts of things. So we're, we're in a few different places, but uh, please God, we can all come together. Uh, for some Torah, uh, as we anticipate the Mirza Hashem, now less than a week away, uh, until Rosh Hashanah. The topic I wanted to speak about uh, is directly relevant to Rosh Hashanah, but it was also just as relevant for the entire Sarasim Tshuva and Yom Kippur, and as I hope we shall see, it is also equally relevant to our entire lives uh, of Avodah Hashem and hopefully religious growth uh, and aspiration. The specific connection, I guess you could say, to Rosh Hashanah is the fact that we know that Rosh Hashanah, like all the holidays, has various names, each one representing a theme. But one of the primary themes, not the only theme, but one of the primary themes of Rosh Hashanah is that it is the Yom Hadin. It is also when we coronate Hashem. There are all sorts of different themes. Uh, but the one that people either avoid the most or get the most impassioned by, uh, it's either one or the other. There's nothing in the middle about being judged. Either you embrace it and it, you know, it motivates you to daven maybe harder than you ever have, or you just live in cognitive dissonance and avoid it and ignore it. I think there's only one of two options. But that is the theme of the judgment of, of Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, the theme of judgment, I think, is one which is obviously relevant to Rosh Hashanah, but Yom Kippur, Aseris Mechuvah, and really ultimately about life. I say that for the simple reason that I think if we consider the, the notion of being judged, which perhaps another way we would say would be to be evaluated, in any area of our life, sometimes we are the ones being judged, okay, in front of Hashem, but sometimes we could be judged at work. If we have a supervisor, um, it's perhaps a little bit, it takes a different form, and I, I hope a different form, but with our spouse, with our own parents, Let's be frank, as our children get older, with our children, right? We're constantly being judged, and the, the shoe is often on the other foot. We're judging, we're evaluating other people. The common thread for all of those things, I would say, is expectations, right? If there's an expectation, then you have something to be judged against. I'll say it the other way. If, just take, for example, any of us you know, who uh, currently or at any point in our life you know, have worked and we get called in by a supervisor or even that matter with our own parents or when you're with our own children, a very reasonable defense or response could be, and frankly, sometimes we give this to other people and sometimes we hear it ourselves, is how was I supposed to... Not, how was I... You didn't make clear what the expectations were, right? It's not fair to judge me of falling short if I, you didn't tell me what the expectations are. So I think on a subtle level, that's really the, the ultimate, uh, the source or the underlying premise of all judgment in all areas of life is that it's a question of simply assessing how close or not, how successful or not we were to meeting the expectations that somebody had of us or we have of other people. So now to be less abstract and more concrete... If we're talking about judgment on Rosh Hashanah or judgment in the eyes of Hashem at any point in our life, what we're really now saying, if we want to reformulate, is what are Hashem's expectations of us? And then, well, the, part two and till infinity is how do we meet those? But today's shir is a more modest, but I think very crucial goal, which is 
how do we understand what Hashem's expectations are of us? Now you'll say, okay, simple, I open up the Torah, I open up the Chumash, I open up uh, the Shulchan Aruch. That's obviously true, but I want to discuss something that's both more profound, but also more general. I'm not going to, you know, again, hopefully uh, we'll be learning the rest of this year, and hopefully for many years together, we can discuss many different specific areas of halacha. But I want to kind of zoom out and see something that is, I think, very, very important, but from a broader, further perspective. And in order to kind of anchor us in a way that I think we can really make some serious progress, I'd like to focus on a particularly famous Mishnah in Maseches Avos, in Pirkei Avos, and that is source number one uh, on your sheet. I believe there are still a few source sheets left, I think, at the end of the table, uh, and someone's coming in about to open the door now, so if you want to give them a sheet, if you don't mind, if there are extras, I'd appreciate that. Um, and the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, in source number one, is the beginning of the third parak. Akavya ben Mahalel Omer. Think about or look at, so to speak, in your mind's eye, three things and you'll never sin. Okay, now this is a very heavy Mishnah. Lots of Perkyavos is a little bit lighter and a little more uplifting. This is one of the more heavy uh, Mishnayos. Says Akavi ben Mahalel, what are the three things that if you just keep these in the front of your mind, you'll never sin? Number one, da ma'ayin basa. Know from whence from where you came. And as the Mishnah says on the second line, the answer is, mitipas rucha, which is the Mishnah is a very uh, specific and even vivid, if not graphic, description of we all come from very crude biological material. Right? You're not all that. You come from something very small and very modest. Number one. Number two, he says, you know what else you should think about? La'an atahulech. Where will you end up going? And as the Mishnah answers that question in the second line, Lamokom Afar Rima right? From dust to dust, it doesn't matter how strong you were in a physical sense, how prestigious and how honored you were, how wealthy you were, right? To be blunt, and this is actually just a translation of the Mishnah, we're all going to be worm food. So the Mepharshim explained this is not so much about humility as much as is it really worth it running around after all sorts of things which are frankly fleeting? For eternity, we're going to be dust to dust. So do you want to really trade in the type of things that ultimately uh, you would like to have benefit from in Olam Haba for your neshama for some temporary, very fleeting hana'a, which you know, is here today and gone tomorrow? So there's the modesty angle, there's the, you know, the transience of life angle. Again, like I said, really uplifting stuff, guys, right? Are you glad you came to us here today? Um, but now I want to focus not on either of those two, or even the mission as a unit, each of which would be very good ways to spend an hour learning Torah. I want to focus only on the third thing the Mishnah says, which is, going back to the end of the first line, what's the third thing? Lifne mi ata asid litain din v'cheshbon. Before whom will you ultimately have to give a din and cheshbon? Now, before we break it down, because the whole rest of the shir will be to try to understand what we just read, the simple understanding, clearly the gist of the Mishnah in this third component is, think about before whom you'll have to answer for your actions. And the Mishnah answers at the end, on the bottom of the third line, at the end of the third line, Lifnei Melech Right, which I think, the way I always understood this, is kind of emphasizing, because you say, well, isn't that obvious? The point is, in this world, again, we're often standing before people. It could be our boss, sometimes it's our spouse, it could be a judge if we had a traffic ticket, or God forbid, something worse. Um, 
It could be waiting in line at the area, God help you. Right? Or all sorts of different things. But the reality is all of those people, um, you know, they don't have that. They only have some limited power over us. They also only have limited knowledge, right? You can, you know, I'm not discussing now the ethics of it. You can trick them. You can come with this or that. You can use protectia to cut the line, to do this, to get out of things. I, there, it's not, it's not, you know, it can be scary being judged by anybody, but imagine that's somebody who only knows a certain amount and you can manipulate, you could, you know, flatter, all sorts of things. But that's not who you're going to be judged by. You're going to be judged by Melch Machayam Lachim who knows everything, who sees everything, he can't be flattered, he can't be bought, a big donation to the shul is not going to necessarily get you out of it. You have to really be, you know, honest about what you're facing. That's the third thing. So it's kind of like, you know, going bowling with the, with the bumper rails or whatever. Right? If you want to make sure you can hit the pin, you want to make sure you don't sin, says a caveat, if you can remember these three things. Now, how many people want to walk through life having these three things in the front of their brain, right? You'd probably <laughs> just crawl up in a ball. So... I don't know anyone who can think about these things all the time, which is why we all sin. But I do think it's probably a pretty uh, tried-and-true recipe. If we could think about them, or in the moments where we do think about them, I think this really would probably dissuade us from most of our mistakes. So at the very least, even if those of us, and I include myself, aren't ready to think about this every moment of my life, if we could stop ourselves in that brief moment when we're, about to be, when we're tempted to about to do something wrong, and then try to remember one, two, or even three of these things, I bet most of the time we would actually pull back and not do the thing. Because I think this really would be, frankly, it's so effective that it's too effective to think about every moment, but it's too, too depressing. But frankly, could it be effective? I think uh, absolutely, it most undoubtedly, undoubtedly would be. Okay, so that's the overall message of the Mishnah. But for our purposes, I want to focus on one thing and one thing alone. What did he mean in the Mishnah, what does the Mishnah mean in that third component when it says, who before whom we're going to give din v'cheshbon? What do the words mean? So din is the easier one to translate, perhaps. Judgment. So let's assume, I'm going out on a limb here, that din means judgment in the same intuitive way we've been using it since the opening of the Shir. What does cheshbon mean? What do you think? What do you think cheshbon means? Suggestions. An account, good. Now, what does that mean? Din v'cheshbon, a judgment and an account. I'm fine with that. But what does it mean? Precise record. Who gives it? We do. We do. Okay, that's fine. So, in what sense? What does that mean? What's the order? What's the process? What do you think? What's the mission telling us? How do you envision that big judgment day in the sky? Critiquing ourselves. Critiquing ourselves is very interesting, right? The, I think the overall thrust of the mission is from Hashem to us, right? He's judging us. But actually, if you're a Medayik in the Lashon of the Mishnah, it's lifnei mi'ata atilitein. You're giving. That's good. No, that works with what you're saying. So we're going to have to give an accounting. Are we giving a judgment too? Is it both from us? Is it one's from us, one's from Hashem? And doesn't Hashem already know everything already? So what's, what, what are we telling him when we give him the cheshbon? giving him our opinion of ourselves, not what he's judging. He's interested in our opinion. How we judge. Okay. It's, it's like when you have, you know, when you call your son or your daughter in front of you, you know, what did you do wrong? You know, what do you, you know, okay. <laughs> wow. I, you know, it, it, it puts a certain light, a different light on it, that's for sure. Listen, I want to hear from you, not from the other person. Okay. Fantastic. But then all different possibilities. Fantastic. I, I want to drill down, and this is obviously what the theme of this year is going to be. I want to share some approaches to this question, but I just want to even highlight now at the moment even though I think the overall gist of the mission is clear, 
The actual language is not so clear. I'll also add the order of the terms are not so clear. Right? If cheshbon is giving me an accounting, so what would you have thought should come first? It should be cheshbon vidin, right? In front, with your own child, or for that matter, even if it would be a court case, right? First you hear the evidence, you do the cheshbon, and then you do the din, right? If I remember correctly, I think, you know, I'm old enough to remember when they used to make, like, judge, jokes about, like, communism, like when there was real communism, not like college kids, you know, thinking that, that the world would be great if no one had any money. Um, but, like, real bad, evil communism, right? That would be like, the, what is it, you know, communist court, right? First they, first they announce you guilty, then they figure out what we charge for. You start off guilty. So that's what it sounds like. Din, you're already guilty, or you're whatever, and then we're going to give the cheshbon? Shouldn't have been cheshbon v'din? So I want to focus on um, two approaches to this question, but because I have no self-control, I'll first tell you a third. Because there's three that I'm aware of, and I want to briefly tell you the third, but it's not on the source sheet, you should just be aware of it. And once, once the source is inside, you'll let me know afterwards, I'm happy to send them to you. But there is a third approach, uh, or for now, our purpose, very quickly, a first approach, which was shared, it must have been something in the air. I don't know if you've ever found this in your learning, and it could be Lahavdil is true in other, I'm sure it's true actually, in non-Torah intellectual endeavors. But it's definitely sometimes true in, in Torah, where there's kind of something in the air, and you have different people, but you know, kind of come up with the same ideas on their own, who lived in the same time, or lived in the same place, and it's hard to know exactly how that happened, but so two contemporaries uh, from Tzfat about 500 years ago, contemporaries, you know, in, in the heyday of Tzfat with Yosef Karo and Chadodi and all the Kabbalists and all that. So two of the great ones uh, were Rav Moshe Alshech, the famous Alshech HaKadosh, who was a commentary on the, on, the, uh, uh, on the Chumash, and there's also a sefer called Medrash Shmuel, which is kind of a... Uh, a Likut, a uh, summary sefer of various different interpretations on Perkei Avos. And it was also uh, one of the great tzaddikim of Tzfat around the same time, more or less. And they both say the same idea. They don't quote each other, but they both say the same idea. Again, it's not on your sheet. I just want to tell it to you in two minutes, because it's actually somewhat similar, in a different, but with a twist on some of the things you said. And then we'll get to the two uh, things I want to focus on in the year. So they both say as follows. They say, when you get up to Shemayim after 120, what will happen? You go to one long shear. I... Some, whoever it is, talks even more than I do. A long, long sheer, chazering, reviewing, going over all the things you learned in elementary school and in high school, and maybe if you went to seminary, or not, your, your, your sheer you came to as an adult, and then all the things you didn't learn, going over all of the halachos, all the things to make sure you know everything. You're going to know that material cold. And the, after you know everything, that's, they say, is din. Din is, you, we're going to teach you everything. Now you know everything. Now, Hashem says, okay, now let's go through the movie of your life. And you make the cheshbon. You score yourself. So you see yourself, I'm just imagining, you see yourself, you know, 14 years old on a Shabbos afternoon doing X or Y with your friends. Now you learned the Shabbos, we just reviewed it. Give me a cheshbon. How'd you do? You will be forced to pronounce your own judgment against that din that you have now been taught. No more excuses. Okay? It's a, somewhat similar to some of the things that you were mentioning in terms of an account or a reckoning, but I think it's kind of a, uh, kind of a twist. Um, and it really, you know, again, I'd say, I would say it would underscore, you know, not only that we should try to behave as well as possible, that's certainly the theme of the Mishnah, uh, but we should probably try to know as much as possible so that we can therefore hopefully uh, not only do, do better now, but do better on that ultimate test. Anyway, that's one interpretation of the Mishnah. There's probably, you know, we could spend more time elaborating on it, but I don't want to run out of time, and I really want to focus on the two more well-known, and I think very impactful, at least for me, very, very impactful interpretations uh, of the Mishnah. And the first 
is really quite well known, I think, and certainly very important, and it certainly should be well known, and that is the first is an approach of the Vilna Gon, the Gra. I still remember um, more or less uh, when and where I first heard this Vilna Gon, and it was about 30 years ago, and you can ask my wife or kids, I don't remember things that happened a few days ago. But this made such an impact on me, I still more or less remember uh, the, the Rebbe and the Shear in the context that I first heard this Vilna Gon. So now that I've overhyped it, uh, we'll see if you share uh, my feelings that this is really a powerful message. Let's look at source number two. This is the Vilna Gon and his commentary to our Mishnah. What is Din V'Cheshbon? Din Shedanun Oso Al She'avar Avera. Okay, that's what we kind of expected, more or less in a few short words. You're judged, right? Now, the good point, the flip side, which is, of course, true, is that you're also going to get judged and evaluated and therefore credit for the good things you did. But clearly, the thrust of this mission is the things you're going to have to answer for in the less uh, unpleasant way of thinking about it. And yes, you should know din, says the Vilna Gon. Remember that. Remember what din is. You're not going to be able to escape. It's, you know, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. He won't know. He will know. He didn't hear. He did hear. You're going to have to give a din. Certainly something to remember in Rosh Hashanah, and certainly something to remember after 120. However, here comes the Chiddush. What is Cheshbon? Hu b'sha sha'asa ha'avera, b'oso mitzvah olil mode. Says the film again, you know what Cheshbon is? You know what else you're going to have to answer for? Not just what you did wrong in those cases that you did something wrong, but all of the wasted opportunity. You are answerable for all the good things you could have been doing that you didn't because you were too busy doing whatever you just gave a din for. So it's not just the things you might have done wrong. It, now he, his focus is on time, and I want to focus on time, even though I don't think it's limited to time. But not only the, the time you spent speaking Lashon Hara, let's say take as an, an example that's relevant to all of us, but all the things you could have been doing well, appropriate, productive, inspiring, redemptive, all those things you could have been doing during the time that you were wasting, and worse than wasting, doing something wrong. So it's actually kind of a double jeopardy. You get nailed twice. Not only for the things you did wrong, says the film Gone, but for all the potential things you could have done well, and never did. Again, he focuses it on the time, and you just will read the end of the sentence. We consider, says the Vilna Gon, all the wasted time that you did nothing with. You get punished for that. In addition to the actual sin that you did, you get punished for all of the time that was wasted, in the sense that Hashem knows all the good things you could have been doing. So first of all, I want to expand this to something broader, and then I want to bring it back to time, because that's, I think, so particularly relevant to all of us, uh, especially in 2021. But number one is the idea, which again, is still like mind-blowing to me all these years later, is this powerful, powerful insight that we are not only responsible for the things that we do, we're also responsible for the things we didn't do that we could have done. And that's not for someone else to decide, but Hashem gets to decide. Hashem knows what we could have done. And I have a sneaking suspicion we could have done a lot more than we usually think we can do. We're all a lot more capable than we give ourselves credit for. So we're responsible. That's the, that's the premise, right? If nothing else, you'll walk away with that premise. 
Din v'cheshbamna. Din is what you did. Cheshbam is all the things you could have done, but you didn't. I think this is not only true for things in terms of wasted time. Right? Think about our potential. Think about our talents. Think about all the gifts. Financial, intellectual, just talents that we have that we could have used or we could use, it's not like it's over, thank God we're all still here, so even if we've been making mistakes until now, we can correct them today, but all the things that we've been given that we haven't used, that's cheshbon. We didn't use them at all, we used them for the wrong things, we're responsible not only for the things we did right, or, and responsible for the things that we do wrong, but also for the things that we don't even know about necessarily, we haven't even thought about, but ultimately really, we could have been using those talents, those skills, that ability, those gifts for good things. The specific point he makes about time is really, really, I think, searing, um, especially in our, in our generation. Um, because, you know, and I, I'm, I'm obviously at the top of the list here, but, you know, has any generation ever wasted as much time as us? You know, it's a combination of two things. On the one hand, we're blessed to live at a time where so many things which used to take all day to do now can get taken, you know, taken care of in a, with a button. Um, and no one's regretting that. So not me, I think that's a blessing. I'm not a Luddite. I think it's very good. I think Judaism embraces uh, technological advance. It's a good thing. But it's created tremendous opportunities for time. People used to have, you know, people used to just, they used to work from, you know, dawn till sundown, and then they just collapse with exhaustion, right? That's not the world that 99% of uh, humanity lives in, let alone 100% of us. None of us live that life anymore, thank God. So we all have... Uh, much more time than generations before used to have. And obviously in the last you know, actual generation, the last 10, 15 years, uh, with the smartphone revolution, again, I'm not one of these you know, reflexively anti-anything people, but we all know, and we don't need to ask anyone else, we just need to look in the mirror, how much time we waste uh, with these devices. I, I speak about, uh, sometimes with my children, but definitely, and, and I do speak about this sometimes with my children, but I definitely speak about this with my Talmidim, uh, there is often, especially for young men, uh, such a focus on what they're doing on the internet. That's certainly relevant. But it's often overlooked is even the quote-unquote kosher time is just the waste of time. And again, that I don't think uh, teenage boys or young men are any more you know, uh, susceptible to. I think uh, you can be a middle-aged man or a middle-aged woman and be just as susceptible uh, to that. You know, I'm just going to check my Facebook for one minute. And an hour later, uh, we've all been there. I don't have Facebook, so I have other excuses. But the point is, I've also done that. Right? You think you're just going to do for one thing, and that's just, it's the power of social media, it's the power of the interconnectedness of these devices. And I'm not saying that you're doing bad things, but we have to step back and ask ourselves, did I really need to be wasting that hour? What could I have done with that hour? I think it's a really um, powerful uh, challenge in our generation, and I think there's so much focus. And again, for obvious and appropriate reasons, there's so much focus on the filth of the internet, that this, which is actually more insidious and actually far more, maybe far more, reach, far more damaging, but it's certainly far more a reaching problem because this, you know, I think trips up everyone to some extent. Um, I think that there's not enough uh, emphasis uh, on that. That's the thesis, which I'll call the famous thesis of the Vilna Gon. Approach number one is din v'cheshbon. Cheshbon is not just the things you did wrong, but all the missed opportunities because of 
your misuse of your time, your talents, and your resources. When I say that this is the quote-unquote famous uh, Vilna Gaon, so first of all, a confession, usually when a rabbi or a teacher says this is the famous Rashi or the famous Rambam, famous defined as, I know it. Right? We all know a very finite number of things, and the things that we know we think are famous. This, I think, might be famous not only because I know about it, and now all of you do, so now it's really a famous, you know, when you get home tonight, so what do you think of that famous Vilna Gaon? Which one? You know, the famous one on Dinah Cheshvan. Uh, uh, your arm now, guys. Um, use it well. Um, but this, I think, even in Torah, in the broader sense, this has become a pretty well-known idea of the Vilna Gaon because so many others since him have adopted it and even applied it in areas and on texts that he never addressed. So the most dramatic example that I'm familiar of this is the Meshachachma. Meshachachma, the famous Rav Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, one of the most important you know, modern uh, commentaries on the Chumash. Uh, he wrote other things too. That was a great, great uh, Godel and leader. Um, so I only gave you two on the sheet, sources three and four. But I am aware of, on my own, at least two others. I could have given you four. I just didn't have room to fit it all on one page. Um, but at least four times that the Meshachachma in his commentary on the Torah, either explicitly by name or even without mentioning the Vilna Gon, uh, at least four different times he interprets Psukim, or, or challenges in the text, employing this distinction. And of the four that he does, I wanted to just share two with you, because they are directly related to our parshios and our time of year. In fact, they're both from this week's parsha. Both sources three and four are from the Meshachachma on parshas Nitzavim. Uh, and we know it's not a coincidence that Nitzavim is always read before Rosh Hashanah, because it has a lot of very inspirational, uh, tshuva-themed type psukim. So in source number three... The Meshachachma, here in the first line that I gave you, he explicitly, he begins by quoting the Vilna Gon, Din V'cheshbon, and then he quotes the Vilna Gon. We don't need to read it, that part inside. We already saw that, that according to the uh, Vilna Gon, um, Din V'cheshbon means Din is the thing you did wrong, Cheshbon is the thing you didn't use your uh, time or resources to do. Then on line two, says the Meshachachma, he wants to apply this to Yom Kippur. Now when we think about the opportunity of Yom Kippur, now the hair on the back of our neck is going to have to stand up a little bit, because this raises the stakes. Im Kain, he says, He says, Yom Kippur, and he, the, you know, the part that I didn't include on the source sheet is where he you know, quotes some of the statements of Chazal about how powerful Yom Kippur is and how it can give you kapara for anything you, so says the Meshachachma, if Yom Kippur has such spiritual potential, such potential for, for personal redemption and rehabilitation, and he adds here, it's easy. And I would say easy, I think what he means, or certainly what I would say, is at least in two respects. Number one is in some metaphysical way that we don't really understand. It's easier for Hashem to forgive us. He's in a good mood. He's in a forgiving mood on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but it's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And again, whatever exactly that means... But on a human level, we can all relate to that, right? There are, it, it's true about all of us, and we've been on the giving and the receiving end of this, right? Which is, you know, sometimes we're in a mood, and therefore if somebody says something to us, and we snap at them. And the very same person is saying the very same thing. We'd be much more understanding if we just we were in a... What was the difference? We had a bad day. We had a bad morning. We were in a bad mood. Sometimes you're in a more generous, forgiving mood, and sometimes you're in a more stressed or difficult mood. So on some level, whatever this means, and I can't say I totally understand, right, these 10 days... This time of year, Hashem's in a better, more forgiving mood. But I think Yom Kippur, what he also means, or at least what I would say, is it's also, on a very human, prosaic level, it's easier for us to get into the 
mood of tshuva, it's easier for us to think about these things on Yom Kippur, and that's really what it's about, right? The reason we don't eat is not just to torture ourselves, right? It's to not be distracted. Right? The, whole fo- the real focus of Yom Kippur is to not be distracted. To Instead, you know, whether it's the dressing in white or other things, to focus on what's important in life. And again, no one thinks that you should, no one thinks that the goal is to be a Yom Kippur Jew 365 days a year. There's a reason that the Torah would have told us to do that 365 days a year. It's a one-day-a-year thing. It's as intense as can be. But for that one day, right, everything is aligned to help us. We still have to do the work. But it's all there for us in shul. Hopefully we're in a shul that has beautiful davening. And you know, hopefully the speech isn't too long and is a little bit inspiring. Um, and on Rosh Hashanah you have the shofar. And Yom Kippur you have the singing and the coming together, etc. And I'm not running around or something else. That is amazing, right? We have every opportunity in front of us on Yom Kippur, he says. But if that's the case, then what if a person doesn't use Yom Kippur well? Doesn't use Yom Kippur to its all its potential? Says the Meshachachma, that's Magodal HaCheshbon. Uah. If you don't take advantage of Yom Kippur, if you don't use Yom Kippur for real spiritual growth, self-reflection, feelings of regret, commitment, if you don't use that opportunity, not only do you still have the sins which you've done in the past year still on the ledger, which you could have just as easily taken advantage of, gotten rid of, and you didn't. That's bad enough. But not only that, says the Meshachachma. Hold on to your seats. Mosif avon alavon. Not only do you still have the old sin on the record, now there's a new sin. You know what the new sin is called? You wasted Yom Kippur. That's cheshbon. The did is because I forgot to make a bracha back in March. But now there's a cheshbon. Okay, Hashem says, so you had April, May, June, July, you didn't do tshuva for that. We all know it's hard to do tshuva, you know, randomly in the middle of the year, in the middle of the summer. But you had Yom Kippur! I gave it to you! And you still didn't use it? That's cheshbon. That is cheshbon. On the third line, im chalilo lo asa tshuva, yuchalios haonesh ala cheshbon, hainu haeder asias hatshuva. By not doing tshuva, you've wasted an opportunity. And you will get punished, he says, just like you did on the sin. You'll get punished for that missed opportunity. And perhaps that's even a greater sin. He's not sure. So that's one powerful point. He makes specifically about Yom Kippur. And in a similar vein, in source number four, he makes the same idea about tshuva more broadly. And here he comes to answer a kind of parshanut question that relates to a well-known pasuk in our parsha. Right? In our parsha, right, he says in the first line of source number four, we will read in Paraklamid Pasuk Tezvav, Rein Asati Lefanecha Hayom, Esachaim Vesatov, Eshamaves Eshara. Right? The Pasuk here talks about, that we're going to read this week, the great fork in the road, the great decision that we all have in life. Hashem says, I set before you two paths. You will decide which one you want to go by. Go down. One is good and bad, but more importantly, chayim. It gives you the good. But the other one is not just bad, it gives you death. Right? The stakes could not be higher. Chayim v'maves. Says the Meshachachma, this Pasuk sounds very, very familiar. And the reason is because the Pasuk starts almost identically to a Pasuk that we read earlier in the summer, in Parshas Re'eh, in Parakir Aleph. Now, note the, the similarity, but more importantly, the difference. Two roads in front of you, two paths, it's up to you, whichever one you're going to choose. And the stakes are real. One is the, the path of blessing, the other is the path of curse. Right? 
That's serious. Who wants curse if we get our blessing? However, notes the Meshachachma. There's clearly a difference though. As bad as Klala is, it's not the same as death. As good as Bracha is, it's not as good as life. What happens, asks the Meshachachma, between Parshas Re'ei and Parshas Nitzavim? Right? Life is still life, you know, the path is still the same path, the fork in the road is still the same fork in the road, but all of a sudden, the stakes just got much higher. We went from bracha to chayim, and from klala to malas. Right? So, that's a sensitivity to language, you need to notice that. But what's his answer? His answer is, you could say, more hashkafic or philosophical, and even though he doesn't quote the Vilna by name, he's employing the exact same um, analysis. And the answer is very simple. Something happens in between the two sections. What's that? Ze'kodam sh'amar mitzvah hachuva. Earlier in our parsha is what according to many mafarshim, including the Meshachachma, is the source for tshuva. Ki mitzvah hazos, the Ramban, the Seforno, the Meshachachma, many others say, the source of tshuva, lo neflesi himimcha, lo rachokihi, lo mevareliyam, that's referring to tshuva. Says the Meshachachma, you know what changed in between Parshat Re'eh and these Psukim in Nitzavim? Something right in the middle. Not equally in the middle, but in the middle. Tshuva was introduced to the world. Tshuva was introduced. In Parshat Re'eh, we still hadn't read about Tshuva. Earlier in this week's Parshat, we're going to read about Tshuva, and then we get to the second Re'eh, the second fork in the road. On the one hand, now that tshuva has been introduced to the world, it's the greatest blessing. Who could ma- imagine a life, a world, in which there was never a second chance, never a do-over, never a chance to say you're sorry, never a notion of forgiveness. We literally could not live a day without the chesed of tshuva. So says the Meshachachma, on the one hand, what a gift, what an opportunity that we now have tshuva. Baruch Hashem. On the other hand, third line, But now that we have the great opportunity of tshuva, what comes with that at the same time simultaneously? The awesome responsibility to do tshuva. Once I've given it to you, says Hashem, then if I don't take you up on it, it's a complete and terrible disaster. You had an opportunity to repent and you didn't. Third line, end of the line. That's even worse than sinning without the possibility of tshuva. Instead of being bracha and klala, now it's chayim in maves. And as he says on the last three words, a very powerful uh, understatement, ze musr nora. What a powerful message and lesson. And again, it's scary, but you know, I'd rather give you the truth and help, hopefully inspire you to confront it than better to have our heads in the sand and not realize the predicament we're getting ourselves into. And it really is compelling on a logical level and it relates to everything we know in our own life and frankly the same way we'd probably educate our children, right? You know, you, you don't... Uh, you know, we've all had the younger child complaining how come he or she has to go to bed before you know, the older sibling. And at some point, you know, the answer is just simply, well, because I said. And at other times, it's because, well, he or she is older. And at some point, you have to explain, or the kid understands on their own, yes, the child gets, the older sibling gets to stay up later, but he or she also 
has more responsibilities around the house, has to pick up the younger brother or sister from school, has to babysit when mommy and daddy go out, has all, right? It's, it's, you know, parenting 101, it's life 101, right? Greater responsibility begets greater opportunity. But greater opportunity brings with it greater responsibility. Says the Meshachachma, that's the lesson of the Vilna Go. It's not just that there's a static din in Cheshbon. It's a sliding scale. And the more opportunities we have, that does, the, the din, keep kosher, make brachos, bitzanua, daven, learn, those things are there for all of us. But what is a sliding scale is the opportunities that we had. Not everyone has the same opportunity to learn. Not everyone has the same opportunity wasn't brought up. So we will be judged based on our opportunities. Says the Meshachachma, what's one opportunity that is introduced in this week's coming week's Parsha? The possibility of tshuva. On the one hand, it's incredible. It's the greatest chesed Hashem gave to us. But oh boy, is there a big string attached to that opportunity. Because if you don't take the opportunity, whew, you've raised the stakes. And I think, again, just think about it in any interaction you've had. Right, again, I, I, I'm harping on children, but it could be with uh, other people too, obviously. Right? Somebody does something wrong, and they just won't say sorry. You know, so many times I was like, just apologize. Like, I can move on if you'll just admit it. Just sincerely regret it. Just apologize. And for some reason, sometimes we have a hard time admitting we're wrong. We have a hard time apologizing. But when you're on the receiving end of that, you know, you hurt me, you did something wrong, why can't you just apologize? I think if you would stop in that moment, you'd ask the person, what's more hurtful at the moment? The original mistake, event, episode, or the fact that even now, I'm giving you an opportunity, I'm I'm ready to put it to bed, I'm ready to move on, just say you're sorry and you still won't? That's even worse. Says the Meshachachma, that's Cheshbon. Lifnei mi ata asiliteng din, the Cheshbon. Tshuva is the ultimate Cheshbon. It's a gift, it's an opportunity, and I don't think any of us would prefer to live a life without the possibility. But just realize, with that great opportunity, came great responsibility. Okay, all of this is approach number one, or two if you count the first one we did, but the first big approach I wanted to focus on, and that is of the Vilna Gon, as expanded on and explained by the Meshach. Any questions on this? I bored you all to sleep, that's good to know. Okay, fantastic. All right, so... We have 15 minutes. Let's do the second approach. And this comes and emerges out of a lengthy, uh, as long as you see source number five, it's actually much longer. I just uh, cut and pasted it to make it more manageable on the sheet. And this is from the Beis HaLevi. The Beis HaLevi is, of course, the original uh, founding member, if you will, of what's known as the Brisker or Soloveitchik dynasty. He is the original Rav Yosef Dov HaLevi Soloveitchik. Uh, the more recent and famous Rav, Rav Soloveitchik was a great-grandson named after his great-grandfather, Rav Yosef Dovalevi Soloveitchik, the Rav from Boston, from YU. Um, of course, a trick, trivial pursuit Jewish uh, geography question is, well, why wasn't he named after his grandfather? The famous Rav Chaim. And the answer is simply because his grandfather was still alive and we're not Sephardi. So uh, he didn't name after a living grandfather. Certainly briskers aren't Sephardi, that's for sure. Uh, they're as Lithuanian as you can be. So he was named after his great-grandfather, the Beis HaLevi. So the Beis HaLevi uh, was you know, a stunning, uh, stunning genius and great rabbinic leader. Uh, he has a multi-volume work of Shelos Vachuvos, very serious halacha and Gemara analysis and lambdas, but he also has a single thin volume uh, commentary on the Chumash, very popularly and creatively known as 
Beis Halevi Al HaTorah. Okay, so um, this is source number five, it's from his commentary to the Chumash, to the Torah, and from of all places, Parshas Noach. We will get to at the end where I want to get to where we started from. We're going to get to Din V'cheshbon, Rosh Hashanah, your life, my life. But we're going to take a little bit of a detour, and we're going to get to Parshas Noach. Let's go back to the story of the flood. If for nothing else, you already have a great Dvar Torah for the family for Parshas Noach. You're set. You already have an early, uh, uh, early Dvar Torah here. But this is really powerful. So he points out as follows. In the opening of the first line of source number five, the Torah tells us that before God brought the flood, he had good reason to do so. Hashem realized, i got to destroy the world. The world has been completely destroyed and corrupted. And not only human beings, but Hishchis kol basar es darko. Every living thing, kol basar, every living thing, has corrupted or destroyed its ways on the face of the earth. And he quotes there in the end of the first line, in the second line, a medrash chazal infer from this formulation as I just mentioned, that it wasn't just human beings who were living immorally, but kol basar, all living things. Kulam kilkulum asayim. It wasn't just human beings, but it was even in the animal kingdom. And there are a lot of different interpretations, including in the Chumash itself, about what the sin of the generation of the flood was. But in addition to theft and other uh, interpersonal uh, lack of ethics, stealing and the like, but Chazal very much, and he, this Medrash is keeping in that uh, vein, Chazal very much focus on issues of uh, sexual immorality, and not just immorality, sexual deviancy. Um, mm-hmm. And the Medrash here points out it wasn't just human beings doing all sorts of things which would be considered immoral and deviant from a Torah perspective. The animal kingdom itself, and the Medrash quotes it here uh, very graphically, HaKelev Holech Achar HaZe'ev, Animals that would, you know, different species were crossbreeding. And not because some farmer put them together in a pen. Right? The species themselves, the, the, the kelev, the dog, and the, and, and the zave, and the wolf. All sorts of things which the Torah itself is testifying, says the Medrash, are immoral and hishchis as darko kolaretz. Okay, that's the Medrash, Adkan the Medrash. Comes along the base Alevi, he says, I have a simple question. How did that happen? Why did that happen? That human beings do things that are wrong or immoral. That's unfortunate, says Beis Levi. But I don't have a question of how that could happen. That's how Hashem made us. Hashem made us with Bechir Chavshis. Why Bechir Chavshis? Okay, maybe you know, that's a class or a course on its own. But for our purposes, says Beis Levi, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, it, you know, it upsets him. It doesn't bother him intellectually, philosophically. People make decisions. Why a person would be tempted, and is it nature versus nurture, and all the things that we're very sensitive to in our generation, he is not obviously getting into. But human beings were created with the capacity for free will. So that doesn't shock him, let's put it that way. He says, but the animal kingdom? We don't believe, and I know, as far as I know, no uh, you know, uh, veterinarian or, or other biologist has claimed otherwise, we don't believe that animals have what you would call free choice, free will, Bechir Chavshis. Why does a, typically a horse mate with another horse? Because that's their teva, that's their nature, biologically, instinctively. They know to do that. How come the horse did never walk over to the elephants? It would never dawn on the horse to do such a thing. So says Mesa Levi, what could have possibly have happened in the generation of the flood that it went so broken that all of a sudden animals on their own were crossbreeding with each other? How could that happen? So his answer, and again, I, I'll, we'll do most of this outside because we're going to run out of time. He says the answer simply is, 
he actually develops, if I remember correctly, I think it was five different stages here in this piece. It says, every time you, you or I, do anything wrong, think of, you don't have to tell me, just think of a particular sin that you often do. The first time you did it, if you could remember, the first time you do something is the hardest. Because until then there was a certain taboo. You don't want to do it, you know it's wrong. But then the second time you did it, it was a little bit easier because the taboo was broken. And then the third time, and by the fourth time, as he puts it, he says, it's interesting that he, had, that he was familiar with the expression we're familiar with, he refers to it as a tevashniya. It becomes second nature. That fear, that apprehension, that anxiety, that ichi feeling we had the first time we did it wrong, it goes away, the second, third, or the fourth time. So the, his point, very simply, is sin has an impact beyond the moment. First of all, on ourselves. That's obvious, we all know that. Number two, he says is, this is very important, I think, as a take-home lesson for all of us, our behavior impacts those around us. If somebody who would never have done sin X or Y then sees you doing it, all of a sudden, well, you know, I'm no better than her. If she can do it, I can do it. You know, no bolt of lightning came down and struck her. I, a million examples of this. An easy example, um, you know, so I'm not picking on anyone here, obviously, but because this is a problem everywhere. An easy example of that would be, let's say, talking in shul. Right? It's not just the people who are talking. It's anyone around you, the people who are sitting two rows behind you, you didn't even notice. They're more likely to talk to their neighbor because they saw you talking to your neighbor. It's obvious, it's intuitive. And we're responsible for that, says it basically. Your action didn't just affect you, it affected the people around you. Now that's true level two, says the Beis Alevi, and Adkan is going to be the rational part of his presentation. We understand that how each sin affects ourselves, and things that we do outwardly, we understand, if we're being honest, how our behavior affects other people. Says the Beis Alevi, and this is, I think, you know, he's saying this as an axiomatic point, but I don't think we could prove or disprove this on a rational level. He's just saying this is a metaphysical point. He says, even the things we do in private, even the things we do but sinna, it has a metaphysical impact. I mean, my word is metaphysical. He doesn't use the word, but I don't know how else to describe what he's describing. He says it has an impact on the people around us, even the people in our country. He says there's a reason that certain geographical locations have a certain character. Right? It's not just for the things that happen in public in those areas. If something is happening so often in private, in ways that you can't feel or touch, or I should say see or touch, but in our guts somehow we feel, just like he says there could be in the temperature, in certain places that have different physical temperature, different physical topographical you know, characteristics, certain places in the world have certain spiritual characteristics. Because the more you sin in a certain place, the more you in a good sense if you do mitzvahs, but if you sin, it impacts everything around you. It's not just that the people in a certain area are going to be impacted by the things that are happening in their area, even if they didn't know it or didn't see it. Level four is, even in the natural world, whether it's animals, level four, level five, it says whether it's animals or whether it's the natural growth, physically, then by the natural world, the animal world, Everything is impacted. Now, it may take a much more higher accumulation of sins to impact and to cause destruction and immorality and whatever that means in the animal kingdom or the physical world than just, you know, you seeing your friend talking shulo or your, your, your friends start talking Lashon Hara, so you spoke Lashon Hara, or you spoke Lashon Hara, so your friends, therefore your friends spoke Lashon Hara. Right, that's the more obvious parts, those first two levels. But that's his thesis, and that's how he explains 
the Mabul. Why did Hashem not just destroy the human beings? Why did He destroy the whole world? And the answer was because the Torah is telling us the whole world got corrupted. Says basically, you know how the whole world got corrupted? Because once one human being and then another human being and then another human being started sinning, and not just in public but in private, that impacted all the human beings. From the human beings, it impacted the physical and the animal kingdom. Therefore, the whole world needed to have a reset. Okay? Adkan, Parshas Noach, and the Mabul. Now he says, back to the bottom of the page, the last three lines. And with this, we're now ready. If you imagine a magician, now we're ready for the great reveal. What does this have to do with our topic? This is the interpretation of Perkeyavos. What does that mean? Kfar Chakru, right? People before me, says the Beis Levi, they've been wondering, what is Din? What is Cheshbon? Says the Beis Levi, Rak Dehem Shtei Bechinos. There are two different dimensions of things we're responsible for. Din hu alamaisim sh'asabatzmo. Din are the things that we did ourselves. Cheshbon, hu shemachashvin imo becheshbon, kama mehachalakim yeshlo b'masav, shel chaveiro. Din is everything we did, good or bad, ourselves. You know what cheshbon is? You know what else you're responsible for? You know what else God expects of you? The impact that your behavior had on the people around you. You have to get not only a din, but also a cheshbon. Wow. So whether or not you like, you're convinced by his interpretation of the flood, that's not my issue right now. But his insight into Din V'cheshvan is really powerful, and it's not the same as the Vilna Gon. The Vilna Gon is all about you. But who, so if I had to ask, we start off the shear by saying judgment is based on expectations. What does Hashem expect from us? So number one, the Vilna Gon's answer was, not only to do the right thing, but to use your potential. The, the gift of time that God gave you, the gift of talents that God gave you, all the brachas, and you're answerable not only for the things you did or didn't do, that's din, but you're also answerable for the wasted potential, the wasted gifts that you never accomplished, the things you could have done and never did, that's cheshvon. Says the Beis Alevi, an entirely different approach. All of that is called din. You know what else Hashem expects from you? To have an impact on others. And obviously, there are multiple concentric circles. Our spouses and our children are the people that we have the most immediate impact on. And that's, you know, obvious, right? If we are living a certain lifestyle, it's not a guarantee our children are going to adopt it, but we've given them a huge head start. And certainly the reverse would be true. If we weren't, then where would our children all of a sudden, if we never make brachos, why would all of a sudden my 12-year-old start making brachos? Obviously, what we do in the house has an impact. Now, isn't it still true that our children have Bechir Chavshis? Of course they do. That's why we get proud when they make the right decision, and it's hurtful, and it's hard for us when they don't. Everyone has Bechir Chavshis. And only Hashem knows, only the great accountant in the sky can say, to what extent, when my child you know, uh, made a bracha, and I was so proud of her, when she made that bracha, how much of it is because I taught her that and she saw me doing it? And I'm going to get some credit for that. And how much was totally her Bechir Chavshis? It's some combination. I have no idea what. But it's clearly some combination. Right? Our parents worked hard and they spent money to send us to day school or to, from camps or to seminary or yeshiva. Right? Without that, who would we be? So yes, do we deserve credit for the decisions we're making? Absolutely. But don't our parents deserve an enormous amount and their parents before them, etc., etc.? But it's not only on our families up and down the general, you know, both up and across. 
It's also the neighbors and the people around us. If you happen to be a teacher or something in that kind of a profession, even more so. But even if you're not, just every, your neighbors, right? If all of a sudden you started, you know, acting differently, dressing differently, for good or for bad, it will affect the people around you. Not because you're preaching. It's just that's how human beings are. You don't even have to get to levels 3, 4, and 5 that the Beis Levi discussed, which are, as I say, either you buy it or you don't, but it's not a rational statement that he was making, that there's this you know, invisible metaphysical impact that we have. Leave that for a moment. Just on the thing that we can see and feel, we know it's true. People around us doing something, it impacts us, and if it impacts us, then the same is true. The things that we do impact the people around us. Yes, our spouse, our children most, but then beyond, 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 beyond. And that, says the Beis Levi, that is Cheshbon. And this, I think, is really, really, um, it's, depending on your personality, it's either scary, uh, but I would like to think of it as energizing and empowering. We can really, really have an impact, and the good things that we're doing, I, wanna, I don't want this to be only chas v'shalom a negative or a scary shir, Adaraba. everything that we've been saying about things you'd be quote-unquote answerable for if you did wrong is true just as much, if not more so, for all the many good things that we're doing. Right? You came to a shear. This shear, hopefully, is three weeks. It's going to be strong. It'll continue. There's now Torah in the community, more Torah than there was four weeks ago. Maybe people will hear about the shear. They'll come. You'll tell somebody about the shear. If you told somebody to come to the shear, now they start coming, so they deserve credit for coming to the shear, of course. But so do you. you not just you get credit for you coming. You get a little bit of the schar for them coming. And it's not... It's a ripple effect in everything that we do. We have an impact. What if your ch- children or your husband all of a sudden learn a little bit more because they now know you're going to a shear? There is countless ways that our activities impact the people around us. Sometimes we can see it, sometimes we know it, and sometimes we only find out about it afterwards. You know, I, I, again, I've had, as a rabbi, you know, I get plenty, there are plenty of disadvantages to being a rabbi, but there are also some advantages, a few. Um, and every now and then, again, if you live in the public eye, you find out, sometimes it's weeks later, months, and sometimes it's years later, Something I said or something I did, and all of a sudden, wow, this incredibly positive impact. Now, it's also true, unfortunately, sometimes a rabbi can do or say something, even if he didn't mean it, that really hurts somebody. It's true in both directions. But it's not just true for rabbis or people in the public eye. It's true for all of us. That everything we do not only impacts us, but it impacts the people around us. And that, I think, are, these are two messages, I think, to really think about for Shoshanah and beyond. The impact that we have on, each, on everyone else and the people around us, as well as the issue of the Vilnagons, trying to live up to our own potential, not waste time, opportunity cost, but also the gifts that Hashem has given us. And He's given all of us so many. And Emir Hashem, we had a hard year, but hopefully a year that was filled with blessing and good things as well. And uh, I wish everyone a Ksiv We should daven, we should come together for good things. Uh, schedule-wise, the way it works out for Wednesdays, uh, the next time we will meet will be after Sukkot, because next Wednesday is Rosh Hashanah, the Wednesday after that is Erev Yom Kippur, and the Wednesday after that is Sukkot. But Emirat Hashem, the shir will continue, the show will go on, uh, and we will meet for a new, uh, a new uh, series of shirim uh, right after Sukkot. Okay, take care everybody.